So we're looking at John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. I just titled it Caiaphas's Prophecy. Caiaphas's Prophecy. The main idea in this section is that John is going to answer the question of why Jesus died. Both from the perspective of the religious leaders and then from the perspective of God. We're going to see from verses 45 through 50 that the death of Jesus was politically expedient. Okay, it was politically necessary. And then from verses 51 through 52, the death of Jesus was spiritually effective. His death satisfied the wrath of God towards sinners. His death secured redemption for his children. Last week, we had a lot of fun reading of Jesus's resurrecting of Lazarus from the dead. I think it kind of rang in our heart all week long of just what an interesting, unique situation that was that Jesus raised this homeboy from the dead who'd been dead for four days. Um, my grandmother-in-law is on the threshold of eternity right now. Lindsay's grandma probably will pass away in the next day or so. And she's been um, struggling with Alzheimer's for quite a while and has had a brain bleed this week. And so we were talking about Lazarus and how that just points to us to the resurrection of Jesus and, and the resurrection of all of us that we have the hope of resurrecting from the dead. And, uh, and my mother-in-law reminded me of the King James version of when uh, Jesus is like, all right, crack open the tomb, you know, and let's bring Lazarus out. And the King James version of what uh, Martha says to Jesus is, but Lord, he stinketh. And I was like, oh, how did I not remember that for my sermon last week? So I was just a little like, remember how funny that was? Okay, so there's some things that were said around our home this morning. Ah, okay, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but, uh, but how incredible that, that, that Lazarus's four days of death, that he dead, like he totally dead, um, but not with Jesus. Like there's nothing too hard for him that he can't just full on raise a guy up from, from stone cold death. And you would think that that miracle would just cause the entire nation to recall the prophecies of the Messiah that Jesus is indeed the one that had been foretold to come and be the savior for the sins of the people and then also the Lord of the people as well to be both Christ and Kyrios as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, that he would be both Lord and savior. You would think that that Lazarus from the dead, I mean, everything else has been incredible, but like this like seals the deal. Like let's Let's just bow ourselves before Jesus and say, hey, whatever you got going on, whatever's in your holy will, 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 ill, will, we're in, okay? Sorry, sometimes it's a little bit of my Lakeview grammar crash, class catching up with me. Okay, not that it was bad. It was very nice. But uh, whatever's in your will, Lord, like we're in. But that's not the response from the raising of Lazarus. It, It wasn't all rainbows and roses and butterflies and kittens. Um, As we all pick up right here in our text, it says, verse 45, then many of the Jews who came to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. So that's good, right? That's a positive outcome of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But this wasn't the first time this had happened. Like in John 2, 23, 
uh, during the Passover feast when uh, uh, Jesus had even thrown the tables over in his display of displeasure um, during the feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. Or in John 10, 42, many believed in him there as he spoke of him being the good shepherd. And, and yet so often these were almost pseudo beliefs. These were almost uh, people who didn't fully understand what was going on. Uh, they were easy believisms, you know, they were those that enjoyed the multiplication of the fish and the loaves, and they really loved it when there was the ecstatic and the dramatic stuff happening, but they just weren't all in when it came to the cost of discipleship that Jesus would be speaking throughout kind of like the main wide thrust of his ministry. And so there were some who did believe in him. But others in verse 46, some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. And so we basically have um, some spies in a sense. We have some tattletales. We have some people, and though it's not the first time in the Gospel of John, some people that are throwing Jesus under the bus. He is doing radical things and healing and saving and raising a guy from the dead and yet there's some people that just don't like this guy. And so they're going to go and they're going to talk to some other people that just don't like this guy. And they're going to see about, you know, maybe we can bring an end to whatever it is that's going on here. Um, as Carson says, one might charitably hope that the motive of at least some of them was to win the Pharisees to the truth, right? Maybe they just went evangelistically, like, you got to know about this guy. But the contrast set up between those who believe and those who go to the Pharisees suggests that their intent was more than malicious. There's something they got a hidden agenda in going to those Pharisees. Clark wrote, it's astonishing, exclamation point. Some that had seen even this miracle steeled their hearts against it. And not only so, but conspired the destruction of this most humane, amiable, and glorious Savior. How is it that after they had just seen the raising of Lazarus from the dead, they're going to go out and do something like that? Charles Spurgeon called the reporting of this to the Pharisees, quote, some of the meanest conduct that has ever been recorded in human history. These guys were being jerks. It reminds me of John chapter 5, the healing of the lame man at the pool of uh, Bethesda, and how he, Jesus full-on heals this guy who's been lame for decades, and because he did it on the Sabbath, a bunch of questions arise, and then Jesus finds the guy later in the temple and just reminds him and says, hey, don't forget to repent of all your sins or else something worse is going to come upon you than just being lame, okay? And that guy that had just been healed like that day has the audacity to go and throw Jesus under the bus to the Pharisees that day and say, hey, just in case you're wondering who healed me on the Sabbath day, it was that guy right over there. <laughs> and then they come and they attack Jesus like, Poor Jesus, right? Like, God, I can't get a break, you know? And, uh, and so like what Spurgeon said, man, that they would go from Lazarus's empty tomb 
to go find the Pharisees and rat on Jesus. Uh, that's some mean stuff right there. We're going to see in just a little bit. Why, why were they even tattling? What was there to tattle on? All he did was something awesome. Well, look, let's, let's look, see what the context tells us. Verse 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do for this man works many signs? So those Pharisees go and they gather together the Sanhedrin, about 71 uh, of the Jewish leaders made up of Sadducees. Uh, who are the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees were Jews. And the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection from the dead, that eternal life of heaven, nor did they believe in angels or demons, okay? So you'll see the Sadducees a lot, like in the gospel or in the, the book of Acts, when the apostles are preaching the resurrection of Jesus. They really don't like that being preached because they don't believe. They're sad. They're sad, juicy. Okay? All right? So some of the Supreme Court was made up of sad, juicies. And then some were made up of fair, you see. No, Pharisees. Okay? Uh, Pharisees, that was just their whole job was to keep the law of Moses and to just be self-righteous. Every jot and tittle, like we've got to try to be as perfect as we can. Of course, they would bend things and twist things and find loopholes and make up other little rules to help with the rules. And, and they would just be total hypocrites, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 23. And so there'd be about 71 of these Jews that made up the Supreme Court of Israel. They were uh, set up underneath the Roman authority. So they were just, you know, nearly a puppet authority underneath the Roman government who was over Judea at that time. And so this Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation, is all called together with the priests and the leading priestly families, and, um, and they're trying to figure out what to do about Jesus, okay? Something that they initially complained about is, what shall we do for this man works many signs, Okay, it's really sad that they recognize that there are legit signs going on through Jesus. This isn't the first time in the Gospel of John that we've seen that. They recognize this guy is doing some real stuff, that a notable miracle has occurred we cannot deny. Or they all knew in John chapter 9 that the blind man that was healed, you remember the cakes of mud and go wash it off and, and that stuff? And they all were trying to figure it out because they knew this guy was the blind guy, 38 years or so from of being uh, blind. And a notable miracle has occurred that now he can see. And so they knew a miracle had happened, but they just didn't like who it happened through. You know, there's a little bit of jealousy. You know, there's a little bit of threatening happening. There's a lot bit of threatening happened. This guy's coming in on the scene and we're going to see in just a minute. Well, let, let me just go ahead and get to it. Verse 48, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. So these are the Jewish leaders of the nation that know that miracles are happening, that know that he's fulfilling messianic prophecies from the, the Old Testament. And now they're at a critical, pivotal point pivotal place in it all where they're realizing everyone's going to believe in this guy. And if everyone believes in this guy, what does it mean about our authority? 
No one's going to want to follow us and do what we say. And these guys that are just so self-righteous, their self-righteousness is blinding them to the conspiracy that they're about to start. We are just talking about um, how in Nepal, if someone becomes a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and is baptized up in the mountains of the Himalayas, where we go minister on a yearly basis, they have a two-week life expectancy after being baptized because the monks will come up out of the mountains and they will demand that they deny a faith in Jesus Christ. And if they do not deny it, then they'll be killed. And so we have personal contacts and connections of martyrs in the Tibetan Buddhist areas of Nepal. And, uh, and so something that we've seen as well is as we're going up into these mountains and we're doing water projects and we're determining uh, the amount of human trafficking that's happening in a village or discovering the amount of dysentery that people are getting through drinking unclean water. Um, and we're noticing that the amount of fecal material that's coming off the hillsides into their fresh water sources, uh, it's because people just go to the bathroom wherever, you know, they get the urge at any given point. And so we'll give educational classes and bring projects into villages and create latrine systems to where once you have a spot where you go, then your water source will be clean and then that will end the diarrhea issues and all these children that are dying before the age of eight to where they aren't even naming their children before eight because the kids are going to die anyways. Uh, and so people are getting healthy again. But as Christians are coming into the community and bringing hope and life and light, that is removing power from many of the monastic sources and so they'll come into the villages and they'll tell people that the demons flock to wherever people poo in the same place all the time. And so if you go there, the demons are going to get you. So you've got to go back out and go to the bathroom all over the place. And, uh, and so no one will use these brand new latrines that are made there, okay? So it's a similar thing, just wherever there's religiosity and power that comes through it, whenever there's a threatening to that power... It doesn't matter who it is or the benefit that they're bringing to the people, we've got to end it, okay? And nowhere was this seen more prominently and profoundly than in the ministry of Jesus to the people of Israel, okay? So they're seeing, here's a guy that's casting out demons, healing the lepers, healing the women with the issues of blood, healing the blind people just on a multitude of scales. Uh, there is just radical stuff happening. And you know what? There's no denying it. But people are going to start believing him. And if they do, then they're not going to be following us. And if they're not following us, there's not going to be a reason for the Romans to keep us around. And so they begin to take it personally. We're not going to be needed. Our temple's not going to be needed. And so we've got to do something about this guy. Uh, there's a special hardness of heart that's happening to these men as they're having this meeting because they're, they are the guys that ought to know better. They are the guys that have memorized the scriptures from birth. These are the guys that know the messianic prophecies. But they have hardened their heart so that it doesn't matter if it is a confrontation to my pride and my self-righteousness and my prestige and my status in a community. I don't care what it is. Um, I'm not going to humble myself and declare Jesus to be Lord. Does that seem so far off? Or is that something that we see today still? Is it something that we see in ourselves 
Certainly. Is it something that we see in some of the bureaucracy around us? Certainly. Is it something that we see, you know, in our local and regional government? Certainly. Okay. And so it's no surprise that it happened back then. And in the case with Jesus and these um, religious uh, Jews, it was David Guzik that says the Jews' opposition changed. First, they opposed Jesus because they weren't convinced he was the Messiah. Now they opposed Jesus because they were convinced that he was the Messiah. They admitted the miracles, but look how they treated the miracle worker. They denied him, they opposed him, and they were afraid of his influence over the people. And so Psalm uh, chapter 2 verse 2 is being fulfilled right now where the prophet said, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. So Psalm chapter two is actually being fulfilled right here where the rulers and the leaders are conspiring together about how to deal away with this inconvenient Lord and his inconvenient Christ. This is big stuff that's taking place. Prophecy being fulfilled. Now the psalm goes on to say that the Lord of heaven laughs at them like they can have their little meeting and like figure out a way to stop God and his savior and the savior of the world that he sends, right? Um, And so there's this meeting taking place. What are we going to do about this problem? The same meetings happen today. I was just thinking about, you know, I've heard of certain meetings trying to figure out how do we stop the lockdown, you know, or how do we stop power that's unchecked or how do we, meetings are happening all over Oregon and, and just for all sorts of things, right? And we've all heard of them. Like I heard that they got together and they sat around and they said, here's the issue. How do we stop it? It's a tale as old as time. Go back 2000 years. Here's the issue. And how do we stop it? How are they going to do it? Matthew brings it into real time in Matthew 26 as well, verse 3, that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. That's going to be important uh, for the couple of verses to come. And they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Um, and so you've got these religious guys, and they've got this meeting It's kind of startling. They probably even opened the meeting in prayer. I mean, these were religious dudes. And they're going to come to a conclusion by the end of the meeting that Jesus has to go. How many times in religious meetings today do meetings even start in prayer, but they miss the hero of the scripture. And by the end of the meeting, even in church circles today, it's happening all over the country. Jesus has to go. The word of God has to go. It's too inconvenient to our prestige in the community as a church, our power in the community as a church. So we're going to neglect the scripture. We're going to neglect the Lord. We're going to neglect the Christ. And we're going to do what we got to do to keep our status and our symbol. Okay. Just so you know, by God's grace, that'll never happen here. Okay. That we would always say, what's the word say? How do we exalt the Lord? And how do we exalt his Christ? We must decrease and he must increase. If it means we lose everything that we have uh, as a church and as people for the sake of knowing him and the fellowship of his sufferings, then we say, amen. We just want the gospel to be proclaimed for people to know him. But, but as far as the fluff and the stuff and the pride and the prestige, it can all go. Like that's all, well, fluff, you know. Um, 
Anyways, can you say fluff from the pulpit? I don't know. It meant something different in my house growing up. Okay. Okay. For verse 48. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Their empty religion is focused, first of all, on them. They don't care about the people. They're focused on themselves uh, for their own position, the power, the prestige. And then verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Wait, this just... That book hadn't been written yet, How to Win Friends and Influence People. But they didn't need the book. They had Caiaphas, right? You guys don't know anything, all right? You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, This is just hilarious stuff. Um, So Caiaphas, his personal name was Joseph. Had been the high priest since AD 18, appointed to that office by the Roman prefect Valerius Gratus, son-in-law to Annas, uh, who had been the high priest from 86 to 8015. And, uh, and it was during this remarkable special year, our evangelist tells us in this verse, that uh, Caiaphas would be the high priest. He's the high priest at just the right time. Like Galatians tells us in chapter 4, that at just the right time, when the fullness of the time had come, God, for, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, that he might redeem us from the law. This is awesome. Just driving down here this morning, uh, I rode down with my daughter, Lainey, and she just asked like a really great question. Like, why did Jesus have to die right then? Like on that day, was it that important that he died that day? Or why didn't he come today? Why wasn't he here today? And then he died today. And I was like, honey, that's such an awesome question. But Galatians tells us, and it confers uh, with the rest of the scripture, that it was at the fullness of the time that Jesus came. It was at just the right time in human history, at the crescendo of human history, where Israel had been under the bondage of the Romans, after they'd been under the bondage of other empires, they were at the end of themselves, there'd been 400 years of silence, no prophets had been speaking, they'd re- like they, it was the moment that they ought to realize that they had separated themselves from God and nothing of their own human ingenuity or might or self-righteousness could ever save them. So God sent forth his son at that right moment in Bethlehem when there was a Bethlehem and it was the right time and he could fulfill all the other prophecies concerning at that right crescendo of human history. He was born of a virgin and he was born under the law that he could fulfill the law and redeem us. And, and so it was just the right time. Okay. And here John tells us that it was a remarkable year. It was that remarkable year when Ananias, or I'm sorry, Caiaphas was the high priest and he was going to say something that would just, man, it ought to make our hearts skip a beat. Uh, Well, the first thing that he says doesn't seem all that special when he does say that, uh, you know nothing at all. Uh, D.A. Carson called it Caiaphas's opening blast. Like, man, that'll get people's attention in a speech, right? Y'all don't know anything. Yeah. Oh, quiet crowd out there today. Um, so you dip, typically don't start sermons or messages like that. But um, according to Josephus, a uh, Jewish Roman historian, the Sadducees, you remember who the Sadducees are? The Sa- Okay, we won't go there. The Sadducees had a reputation 
for rudeness. That was like their thing. What? No offense. It's just my thing, you know? Um, they had a reputation for rudeness, according to Josephus, even among one another. And evidence of this has been seen in the abruptness with which Caiaphas now broke in on his colleague's agitated chatter. You know nothing at all. Or more freely, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay? You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Verse 50. So what do they know what they're talking about? Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Okay, remember who said that, okay? A Sadducee, who was sad? Okay, a Sadducee, uh, a guy that should have known that this was the Messiah and maybe even does know but doesn't care, a self-righteous guy, a guy that in just a, within the week is going to condemn Jesus to death on a Roman cross, It was through that guy's lips, not a good guy, through that guy's lips, a guy that was appointed by Romans to be the high priest on that remarkable year, through that guy's mouth that this sentence was said. Can I read it again? I don't know if you get the the depth of this. It'd be really tempting to just move on to chapter 12 and skip over this section and be like, let's get to that really cool part where Mary anoints Jesus's feet with her hair. I mean, we're all stoked to like know what that was all about, right? Um, But we would have missed this. Let's say it again. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. You don't understand. You're not taking into account. You do not realize that it is Better for you, it is advantageous for you, it is profitable for you that one man would die for the people. Now, Caiaphas is talking to the Sanhedrin, who's all worried that their positions are going to go, you know, down the toilet or something like that. He's telling them, you guys got to know as the Sanhedrin, it would be better for you if one guy died so that you guys could Keep your jobs and keep your position. But John the evangelist, as well as us, we read that and we know there's something behind what Caiaphas is even saying. And John's going to tell us it as well. That it is indeed true that it is expedient, necessary, advantageous, and better for you that one man would die. So that all the people would be saved. That one man would die. That all the world and the nations would be saved. Now what a remarkable thing. That it was that remarkable year. That the guy that he's talking about. Happens to be the one that came to die. For the sins of the world. He happens to be the one that came to die. So that we could live. Thus it was Written, Luke chapter 24, and thus it was necessary that the Christ had to come and suffer and die. That forgiveness and remission of sins and repentance could be preached through all Judea and to the uttermost parts of the world. 
I mean, what are the odds that Caiaphas would say that this year, this remarkable year, and the guy that's the problem is the guy that it was already written that he would die for everybody to be saved. This is incredible stuff. You guys don't know what you're talking about getting all worried. We've got a scapegoat right here. You guys need to consider this. The word consider, Leon Morris says, is a word used for reckoning up of accounts and the like. He's saying that they cannot even calculate, cannot even work it out, that such and such a course of action is the expedient one. But as the high priest, somehow he's figuring it out that this is our way out. He just doesn't know that he's missing the mark of the way out that it could even be for him. Carson, Jesus must die for the people. For the people. The Greek word hyper tau lao. He's using sacrificial language here. He doesn't even know that he's using it in a Christian sense. That one man must die for the people. It takes us back to the sacrificial system of the temple, the day of Pentecost, or or rather the day of um, Passover. Okay, we just celebrated it. The day of Passover, right? We all know the day of Passover, the lamb was slaughtered so that uh, anyone who took that pure and spotless lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of the house, that the angel of death would pass over Egypt And anyone who had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost over their house would be saved from the angel of death and their firstborn child would not die. So all of Israel slaughtered the Passover lamb, put the uh, blood over their house, and that blood secured their safety from the wrath of God. The pagan Egyptians did not slaughter the lamb, did not have the blood covering their house, and their firstborn sons all died all across Egypt. It's a picture of the gospel. Jesus is our Passover lamb who was slaughtered for us. And we remember it every year. uh, And more than once a year, of course, that that anyone who has the blood of the lamb of Jesus over the doorpost of their heart, I like to say, will not perish, will not suffer the wrath, will not die, but have everlasting life. But there was another sacrifice that happened on the day of atonement. On the Day of Atonement, there would be two lambs that would be brought to the high priest. One was called uh, the scapegoat. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. The high priest would set his hand upon that lamb's head, that scapegoat, and he would confess his sins and the sins of the people. And then he would send that goat out into the wilderness where it lived a long and happy and full life and had many goat children. I bet he like gets over the little crest of the hill and it was like, bam, you know, then like a little thing of smoke. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry, man, some goat people in the room today. They're like, can't even believe you think of a goat like that. Okay. All right. Now the goat that was released, that scapegoat, it's been said was a picture of expiation which speaks of the removing or the covering of sin. Sin being removed or sin being covered. But there were two lambs, one for the covering of sin or the removing of sin, and then another that was slaughtered on the Day of Atonement, which was killed for the propitiation for sin. Propitiation. You guys got that word right? Propitiation. 
It speaks of the purifying or the rather pacifying of the wrath of God. Okay, read the book of Romans. You'll get a good healthy dose of of propitiation, okay? One year in our school of ministry, it was an assignment to write a song or a poem or do artwork about the gospel using all of the shan words in the gospel, you know, um, sanctification, justification, propitiation, you know, reconciliation, you know, all of those things, the shans, you know, hey, shan, uh, And my friend Ryan, who's the worship leader at Calvary Corvallis, wrote this awesome song, and I'm not going to sing it, but it goes, you justify me just as if I never sinned. I'm innocent. Lord, you redeemed me, paid the price I couldn't pay. Now I am saved. Uh, And then the bridge goes, uh, there's a little line, only your propitiation could make atonement. For my salvation, you know, I'll sing it to you someday. Um, But the scapegoat went out into the wilderness, expiation, okay? The expelling of sin, the removing of sin or the covering of sin. The other goat, the one that would be slaughtered, a picture of Jesus pacifying the just wrath of God. And so when Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die on behalf of the children of God, he reminded us of the scapegoat. He reminded us of the, the goat of propitiation, the two goats on the day of atonement, that someone had to come and satisfy my debt for sin. So Caiaphas, in this statement that he made, reminded us that one man must die for the salvation of many. Readers who live after the cross can't help but see more than just what Caiaphas says. We read it and we know, does he even know he's talking about Jesus and dying for the salvation of the world? We're looking at it from the back end there. So our phrase was that one man should die for the people. And then it goes on to say, and not that the whole nation should perish or be lost. F.F. Bruce says, if the safety of the nation could be secured by one man's death, it was a matter of prudential calculation that the one man should die. In such a situation, he would die for the people. And we've seen this type of stuff in dramas that we watch on TV, you know, where they're having the meeting and, you know, there's a hero spy out there, you know, that's like getting all the bad guys and figuring out all the information, but... You know, they always tell him before he goes behind enemy lines, like, if you ever get caught, we'll never say we knew you, you know. And it comes down to like, oh, no, there was all this drama and stuff. And, you know, the clock's ticking down and we got to back out and we're going to have to act like we never knew him. And he might have been a good guy. He might have been half a bad guy, whatever. But it doesn't matter. Like, it's for the better good that he just go ahead and disappear. And that's essentially what Caiaphas is saying here. He's like, whether Jesus is the Messiah or not, he's kind of a thorn in my shoe, you know. And, uh, and so kind of works out better that he just, you know, he gone. All right. The double meetings run to the end of verse 52 and the jo- uh, as Carson says, the Johannan irony reaches its climax here. There's a legal precedent for Caiaphas judgment, but in the end, he's just justifying his own actions that he wants to do. 
One man put it that justice is going to be sacrificed to expediency. Another guy put it that justice took second place to prudence. As Caiaphas lives out a little self-justification here. Now, so he says this incredible, I don't, I don't know. Are you guys feeling the statement that he said here? Do I, let's just read it. Will you guys humor me? Don't worry. My clock says two minutes and 10 seconds left in the sermon. Okay. So I'm going to use that 210 to reread this verse that Caiaphas says. I don't know if we're getting this. Okay. I mean, you guys are making me feel like I should have gone to the wash his hair with your feet with your hair thing. You know, you guys look into that. Okay. Verse 49, and one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Guess what? That same quote is going to be remembered in John chapter 18 when Jesus goes before Caiaphas to be put on trial to die for the sins of the world. And it says in John 18, This is the same Caiaphas that prophesied that it's better for one man to die for the sins of the people than that the whole nation would perish. Now are you getting it? No, I get it. You're getting it. Being hard on you guys today. Like, dude, I had a hard night. You don't even know what I went through. Okay, verse 51. This is kind of interesting. John kind of gives a little commentary here. What's going on in Caiaphas? It says, now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He doesn't even know what he's saying. He's saying it, but he don't know he's saying it, okay? Even a broke clock is right twice a day, right? <laughs> Trap said, wholesome sugar may be found in a poisonous cane. Some of you get that better than right clock right twice a day. A precious stone is found in a toad's head. I don't know. Anybody here know what that's talking about? No? Any toad people around here? Got goat people, but no toad people. Okay. Or even a blind man can have a flaming torch in his hand. Okay? So, okay. Anyways. (laughs) Caiaphas is that blind man with the flaming torch. Caiaphas is... The broken clock that was right this remarkable day. Okay? When Caiaphas spoke, God was also speaking. Adam, you want to come on up? My thing went off. Okay. When Caiaphas spoke, God was also speaking, even if they weren't saying the same things. Okay? The high priest may not have intended to use language that could be interpreted in this sacrificial sense, But his words could very well mean that Jesus was devoted to death as the scapegoat, as an offering for sin to ward off disaster for the people. Both Caiaphas and John understand that Jesus' death will be substitutionary. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 tells us, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's substitution. That's what we uh, call substitutionary atonement, okay? Remember the Sean words that I was talking about? Substitution, right? Substitutionary atonement. It's what we call, by the way, we have a 75-year-old building that when the wind hits and the heat, sometimes we think the roof is going to fall down on us. I don't know if you've been hearing that, but 
is there a better place to go to be with the Lord? It's like, I was in church worshiping the Lord. One of you told your friend, if I go to church, the roof will fall down on me. And now you're here today? <laughs> it's on you. Okay, it's on you. All right. So what we have in 2 Corinthians 5.21, what we have in Caiaphas's prophecy is the substitutionary atonement or what we call the just for the unjust. God made Jesus who knew no sin, never sinned once in his life. The book of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet he never sinned. The just Jesus came and substituted and took our place. Us, we, the unjust, the unrighteous, the unright. We're like the seven up of people, the uncola, unrighteous, all right? Destined for wrath, destined to die, destined for hell, but God. And in his rich grace, he willingly takes, takes our place, going to die the death of a sinner, on a Roman cross, willingly laying his arms down for those Roman nails, willingly giving his back to the whip of his oppressor, and the whole time saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's just more unjust people out there. And this is why I came. I came to be the one that would die so that everyone else could be saved. He didn't even know what he was saying, but notice verse 52 says that what he was saying wasn't for that nation only. It wasn't just for Israel, but it was also that he would gather together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. And I am so thankful for that verse because guess who that includes? It includes everyone. It includes us. And if you're not a Jew here today, it's talking about you. We call ourselves Gentiles non-Jews. The gospel goes this far, you guys. And it's part of the prophecy that one man would die, not only for the sins of Israel, the children of Abraham, but for all who would follow, who would be scattered across the world, anyone who would believe in this substitutionary atonement, that Jesus came and died in my place so that I could have life and life abundantly and be forgiven of my sin. You will not perish but you'll have everlasting life. Amen?